So this is the second week in our, in our seminar series, and we're looking at a few different topics over these five weeks. Today we're talking about this whole idea of postmodernism, and as I've talked with some of you about this, preparing for it, uh, the responses that I've got, the feedback that I've got have ranged from what a great meaty topic to address in church through to what the heck is that? I've got no idea what you're even talking about. So I'm conscious that with a topic like this, there's, there's the whole spectrum of understanding and interest, probably, uh, from people that you might be doing uh, your PhD in literature or philosophy and reading Derrida and Foucault, through to people that you're like, post what? Who cares? What does it matter? Uh, but it is, as we're going to look at, a topic that does intersect our faith and have an impact on the gospel and how we can be Christians and understand our world in the kind of context that we live in. Because hopefully what we can agree on is that things are shifting, that the way we think is shifting, the way Western society thinks and understands the world and analyzes the world is changing, and that we are undergoing at a really deep level uh, quite a profound shift in the way that thought happens, in the way that we understand the very essence of concepts like knowledge and like truth, concepts that as Christians we would want to say are very important. Um, Western culture is shifting the way those concepts are understood and defined. And we see symptoms of this. You see a clip like that, you read a book, you have a conversation, and you get the feeling that, man, things are changed. People don't think the same way anymore. Uh, but sometimes we lack a way of really understanding our culture as a coherent whole and understanding why, why do people think the way they do? And why is it so hard sometimes to present the message about Jesus in this culture or to present it the way that we've always presented it because it's not heard the same way? So what I want to do this morning, and hopefully... We might have time at the end for, for a couple of questions. What I want to do is, is look at this whole concept of postmodernism, what it is, how it has developed historically, the central ideas, and then evaluate it from a Christian perspective, from a Christian worldview, strengths and weaknesses. Uh, the, the very word postmodernism, which some of you may have heard of, some of you may never have ever heard this word before, but the very word itself suggests that postmodernism can't be understood in a vacuum. Uh, Post-modernism, that which comes after modernism or moves away from modernism. And so if you want to understand what post-modernism is, you really need to understand what modernism is. And if you want to understand what modernism is, you need to understand what pre-modernism is. So we're going to take a bit of a long run-up to post-modernism, but you can't understand it without seeing how things have developed to get to this point. So to kick off with the pre-modern period, pre-modernity is a period of time that ran roughly from the 4th century through to about the 17th, 18th centuries, uh, from roughly the end of what's called the, the ancient history period through to around the Age of Enlightenment. And obviously you're dealing with a huge span of time, a lot of different cultures, a lot of different ways of thinking and belief systems, but there are a few assumptions, a few key ideas that really held the pre-modern era together. One of them was a general acceptance of the supernatural. It was generally acknowledged, and again, we're making generalizations, and, and there are huge nuances within this, but it was generally accepted that behind this natural world, there exists some kind of supernatural realm, some kind of deity, some kind of God, or the gods, maybe the Judeo-Christian idea of God, maybe some completely different version. But what happens in the here and now on this 
planet and what we perceive with our senses is the result of, of something that's going on in the, in the spiritual or the supernatural realm. And this was generally just a given in life. And so flowing on from that, a second assumption in the pre-modern period is that what we know, we know because of divine revelation. That what you and I know, our knowledge, is just a fraction of everything that's contained within the divine mind. That God or the gods has at some point in time revealed knowledge to us and it's mediated to us through structures like the church. So we know what we know because the church told me or a priest told me and these religious institutions were really the power brokers in the pre-modern era. So we know only because this knowledge has come to us from somewhere else. That doesn't mean, by the way, pre-modernists were unscientific. There are a lot of important pre-modern scientists, but they generally undertook science with a view that science would lead them toward God, that science was thinking God's thoughts after him. And inevitably, this discovery of the natural world would lead us to worship and adore the creator who created this world. So science operated generally within a context of some kind of faith. That's the pre-modern period. Then somewhere around the 17th, 18th century, pre-modernism becomes modernism. Again, there's not a black and white shift. It didn't just stop one day and modernism started the next day. But there are a few things that happen around that time period that lead to a major shift in, in Western culture. One of them is a philosophical shift. And it's generally traced back to a guy named René Descartes, who was a, a French philosopher, actually a Catholic philosopher. And he's famous for the dictum, cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. You've probably heard that. Uh, this was Descartes' attempt to try and find a foundation for knowledge. He was actually a Catholic and he had no intention of trying to debunk uh, the idea of Christianity. He had no intention of trying to set himself up as any kind of authority over God. What he was simply trying to do is find an undoubtable foundation upon which you could build other knowledge. And he started from this position of extreme skepticism. Doubt everything that can possibly be doubted. Until you find something that can't be doubted, that's your foundation, and then logically deduce other premises upon that, and you can construct a worldview. And the, the only thing that Descartes arrived at that he couldn't possibly doubt was the fact that he was thinking, that he was a thinking thing. His own rational capacity, his own cognition was the foundation upon which he then deduced more and more and more. And, and as happens with so many different thinkers in history, uh, the followers of a particular school of thought often take these ideas much further than the original thinker did himself. And this is exactly what's happened with what's now called Cartesian philosophy, tracing back to Descartes. But he began this movement towards understanding the human mind as the center of knowledge. That what's central is our own rational thinking capacity. That's where knowledge comes from. That's the one sure foundation that we, that we can't doubt, that we have a, a strong edifice to build everything else from. And as, as more modern philosophers swung in behind this, it led to the centrality of human reason as the basis for all knowledge. What we know, we know with certainty. And the human mind was thought to be like a mirror to the world, projecting the world to us exactly as it is, like a perfect mirror and so through our own reasoning, we could gain a perfectly accurate picture of all that was happening and apply our reason to problems, 
to analysis, to scientific issues, and we could return verdicts with our own mind that were sure and trustworthy and true and could be completely relied upon. So you see the shift that's happening from pre-modernism, where knowledge is thought to come to us from elsewhere, from a god. And then modernism, what starts happening is the human mind displaces that deity. That knowledge is not originating with a god and given to us. Knowledge is coming from our own understanding. And mankind, the human thinking, autonomous, rational subject, becomes the center of knowledge in the modern period. There's a profound confidence in our minds and what our minds can do and what our minds can achieve in, in the modern period. It's the god of reason. This is why the modern period is often called the age of reason. This incredible belief that mankind can apply his mind to problems and unlock the mysteries of life and solve the world's problems and take mastery over the universe, over our surroundings, through our thinking capacity. At the same time as that philosophical shift is happening, there's the industrial revolution going on. Science is, is seemingly able to do more and more and more. Technology is advancing at a rapid pace with a steam engine and these other things uh, being invented and created and helping civilization to advance. And so this continues to spur on the belief that through our rational capacity and through scientific technology, humanity is going to be able to usher in this utopian society, a society where, where there is peace and prosperity, where we can take mastery over the world. Francis Bacon, one of the early modern philosophers, said, Knowledge is power. Knowledge enables us to control our surroundings and take advantage of all that there is. And there is nothing eventually that the human mind and our technology and our science cannot bring under our control. So to, to boil this down a little bit, and this is over, oversimplifying to some degree, but th there are really three ideas in the modern period that form the framework of this whole way of thinking. And this is important because they become the three ideas that postmodernists disagree with. Okay, so it's important to understand these. This is exactly what postmodernists take issue with. These three ideas are firstly that knowledge is good. Possessing knowledge is an inherently good thing. And that as we acquire more and more knowledge, human civilization is going to get better and better and better. We're going to advance. We're going to get better every day in every way until finally we take mastery over all that there is. Knowledge and its acquisition are good, good things. Secondly, knowledge is objective. So we stand, in a sense, outside of the world as neutral, unbiased observers, and we look in and we are able to observe the world exactly as it is, with no subjectivity, with no bias, with no prejudice, we are able to be unconditioned observers of the world and have this purely objective view of things. And because our knowledge is purely objective, this leads to the third premise, knowledge is certain. Reason becomes the final arbiter of what is true and what is right. Because we're purely objective observers and analysts, what we know, we know with certainty. The mind is a mirror, and it projects the world to us exactly as it is. This is the essence of modernism. Now, let me go back just a step. There's one slide we didn't bring up before. You might have to jump back to it, Mike. Uh, I want to show you this progress in terms of what we call a meta-narrative. It might be a new term to you, but, but a meta-narrative, defined it this way, a meta-narrative is an overarching story 
or a myth that, that defines our existence and gives meaning to our lives. It embodies central human values and concerns, forms and structures the basis of social relations, and provides the foundation of civilized society. It's a way of understanding the world. It's a way of understanding where we came from, where we're going, and, and ordering the way that we see things. In, in the pre-modern era, the meta-narrative that was held was basically a religious one. The foundation of the narrative is some kind of supernatural being, some kind of supernatural deity that gives knowledge to us. And this religious narrative, religious order, religious institution that we came from somewhere else, we're going to somewhere else, and we can only understand this world by understanding the supernatural realm that really gives rise to what we see and how we understand the world. In the modern period, that meta-narrative shifted to one that was based on human reason. So God is displaced by the idea of the human mind, and this becomes the foundation of the meta-narrative. And the meta-narrative in the modern era is really often known as the myth of progress. That the, the mind and our own scientific achievements are going to continually progress society until finally we arrive at an age of bliss, an age of harmony, peace and prosperity for all, where everything is under our control and we've unlocked all the mysteries of life. That's the modern myth of progress. So you see the shift from one worldview to another worldview, from one meta-narrative to another meta-narrative. And the modern period ran through the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. And eventually in the 20th century, something started to shift. This is where you get the introduction of post-modernity. And you need to be aware that there, there was no point in time when modernism stopped and postmodernism started. Some people want to sort of put this down to a particular moment, but history is never that simple. And in fact, there are people that argue there is no such thing as postmodernism, that we're still in modernism. Others argue that we're in this period of late modernity and that the sun is setting on modernism, but we're still there. My own take on it is that postmodernism is, is perhaps the best name to give to a transitional period of time. We don't yet know what it's going to be. But what we do know and what is clear is that there are increasing voices who are criticizing and critiquing what modernism stood for, who are taking issue with those three ideas of modernity and calling for some sort of change. Postmodernism really is an emerging critique of modernism, but it's kind of an anti-movement. It doesn't say a lot in its own right, but it knows that it doesn't like modernism. It doesn't like the myth of progress. And there are a few things that have happened, both at a popular level and at a philosophical level, that have started shifting the playing field a little bit and started shaking the foundations of modernism. One of them is, is a series of, of events, just grassroots events that have happened in the 20th century. You have a huge number of human atrocities in the 20th century. Two world wars, the Holocaust, Stalin's regime, Mayo's regime, on it goes. And this just undermined the general myth of progress that modernity sold us. The idea that in every way, every day, we're getting better and better and better, and human society is progressing, and knowledge is inherently a good thing. It just seemed to be undermined by the facts on the ground. That it seemed like human beings left to their own devices weren't getting better at all. And that knowledge was often being used to corrupt, and to oppress, and to harm, and even to kill. You have then in the 1960s the the countercultural revolution, particularly in North America. You have the hippie 
uh, era. You have the free love movement, sexual revolution. You have the beginnings of feminism. All of these things, really what they represent are people trying to break free from the shackles of modernity. Modernity with all its social rigidity and its regimentation. And things are classified and they're ordered and they're functional. And people started to feel like this was a cold and sterile way to live. That modern architecture is just boxing people in, making it work, but it seemed so devoid of life and people wanted something more. And much of that whole countercultural revolution was people trying to break free of this repressive modernist spirit and find ways to express themselves. Arguably not the best ways, but just ways to break out of this, the shackles of modernism and find life and find freedom and challenge the boundaries and challenge authority wherever they could find it. It was the challenging of what, what modernism had sold us. And then you have the onset of globalization through the latter half of the 20th century. It's interesting that just as modernism came in through the Industrial Revolution, you have postmodernism being ushered in through the Information Revolution. Communication technologies are increasing and improving and bringing access to different parts of the world. The global village is a term that's associated with all of that. And as all that happens, some of what globalization does is perpetuates modernism. You see the way businesses, like Wendy's, homogenize the way they do business around the world. You walk into a Wendy's store and it looks the same. Whether you're in the States or here, you know, there's just a, a way of, of looking and being. But in other ways, what globalization has done is woken us up to the fact that we're not all the same. and can't tar every culture with the same brush. There's huge sweeping diversities of cultures and peoples and the way we understand life and the way that we experience life and understand ourselves and the world around us. And that diversity and the appreciation of that diversity is quite a postmodern idea. And you have very contextualized ways of doing things, appreciating we're not all the same. And we're not all moving necessarily in the same direction. So these things, and you can point to other trends in architecture and art and so on, but they lead to a grassroots challenging of what modernism has sold us. And at the same time as all that's going on, there's this shift in the academy in the latter half of the 20th century, um, largely through French philosophers, interestingly, seeing as though Descartes himself was also a French philosopher. But you have names like Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida, Jean-Francois Loyotard, these guys who, they didn't, it's not like they got together every Tuesday for coffee and decided what postmodernism was, you know? They didn't sort of say, hey, now what should we say about modernity and what do we think postmodernism means? They all had their own stuff they were getting on with. They all had their own research that they were undertaking. But, but at a basic level, without going into each of these people and their own agendas, postmodernism at its core represents a challenging of these three modernist ideas. It represents a challenging of the idea that knowledge is good. And just as Francis Bacon said knowledge is power, what postmodernists have done have essentially used that same phrase but in a negative way and said, yes, knowledge is power, and that's not a good thing because it's used to oppress. It's used to control. It's used to set the agenda this is what Michel Foucault argues, that knowledge is used to repress other people. For example, who gets to define insanity? Who gets to define madness? Because whoever does is able to exercise a degree of social control, keep some out and keep others in. Who gets to say this or that? Who gets to define the terms? Knowledge, postmodernists argue, is used to set an agenda, 
to be exclusive, to control, to oppress, to damage and to harm. It's always a power play and it's not at all a good thing. Secondly, postmodernists argue that knowledge is not objective. We don't stand outside the world and observe it as some kind of beings that exist outside the cosmos. We understand the world from within it. We live within this world. We live within this created world that we seek to understand, and we understand it from within our own communities. We understand it from our own vantage point, and we bring all of ourselves every time we try and analyze something or interpret something. It reflects the communities of which we're a part. We have a perspective on things, but it's not this neutral, unbiased, unprejudiced perspective. We're entirely subjective beings. We're, we're, we're a uh, the sum total of all the influences on our lives that have brought us to this point. And when we try and understand the world around us, we see a lot of ourselves in our own interpretations because we bring ourselves to that project. That influences the way we classify things and interpret things depending on who you're hanging out with and what social groups, economic groups, uh, racial groups, demographic groups, geographic groups to, of which you're a part, religious communities. All of these groups profoundly influence how we think about the world, and how we see the world. There are lens through which we look and understand. And so Michel Foucault gives this example of a Chinese encyclopedia that classifies animals according to these categories. Belonging to the emperor, embalmed, tame, strays, having just broken the water pitcher, and that which from a long way off look like flies. These are categorizations of animals. And his point is, are the, are the categorizations we would use in the West any less arbitrary? Or do they just reflect our own cultural prejudice? Who gets to determine what classifications are used? They reflect our culture. They reflect our upbringings. They reflect the way we see the world. And therefore, if knowledge is not perfectly objective, neither is it certain. This is the third premise that postmodernists reject. Our knowledge of the world is not certain because we don't have objectivity, because we don't have neutrality. What we know, we don't know with any degree of certainty. It's important at this point to realize that in general, postmodernists don't reject the idea of absolute truth. That's kind of a Christian caricature of, of postmodernism. We think postmodernism throws absolute truth out. In, well, it's difficult to say with any absolute sense, but in my own study, what seems more common is that postmodernists reject the idea of absolute knowledge. The truth might be out there, but we can't get to it. The truth might exist, there might be absolutes, but we are so limited by our own finite understanding. We're so trapped in the communities that we exist in, and we're even restricted by language, our own words that we would use to describe the world. They, they, they don't eventually get us to the truth, and so we can't fully understand things as they really are. We're limited by our own knowledge. So knowledge is not good. Knowledge is not objective. Knowledge is not certain. This is the essence of, of postmodernism and its critique on modernity. Again, you see how it's kind of a negative movement. It's not really suggesting an alternative. It's simply saying these three things that modernists have told us, they're wrong. That modernism has sold us up the river and it's time for people to call it to account. So come back to this idea of a meta-narrative because I think this is where you see the unique flavor of postmodernism most clearly. The, the pre-modern meta-narrative, you remember, is a religious canopy. It's a religious meta-narrative. And this shifted then to the modern 
meta-narrative, the myth of progress, the myth of rational scientific progress. And what's happened with, with postmodernism? you might expect postmodernism to come along and replace the modern meta-narrative with another meta-narrative, something different, something unique. But this is the distinct character of post-modernity. Post-modernism doesn't just critique the modern narrative. It critiques the very idea of a meta-narrative. It critiques the very existence and calls into question the very existence of any kind of meta-narrative. Because postmodernism argues there is no foundation upon which you can build a meta-narrative. We don't know anything certainly. We don't know anything objectively. There is no possible foundation upon which any meta-narrative can be constructed. And so what are we left with? We are left with local narratives. We're left with micro-narratives, the narrative of your community and my community. The narrative of you, the narrative of me, these, these narratives that give sense to our lives, but none of them are a totalizing scheme. Loyotard defined postmodernity as incredulity toward meta-narratives, opposition toward meta-narratives, skepticism toward any kind of overarching story that seeks to make sense of all things for all people at all times in all places. Postmodernity argues there is no such scheme. There is no such narrative. So all we have are local narratives. What do these local narratives look like? Well, here's an example. Uh, every year, New Zealand celebrates Waitangi Day. That evokes a certain narrative about the formation of our country and our national history. And there's even controversy around exactly how that story worked its way out, as evidenced by Mr. Key's comments recently. But there is a certain narrative that we remember and in some ways celebrate at Waitangi Day. Postmodernity argues that narrative is a national narrative. It's good and it's healthy, but it is not a meta-narrative. It cannot be elevated to make sense of the world for everyone, everywhere, at every time. Another example is if you're particularly big on ecology and you're into the global warming debate and environmental awareness, that frames how you see the world. You may be part of a community of environmental activists. And this makes sense of how you understand where we've come from, what's gone wrong with the world and where we're going. You see it through this ecological filter. And postmodernism says that's good, that's healthy, that narrative is essential for, for that community, that ecological community, but it cannot be elevated to the level of a meta-narrative. It cannot be made into an overarching structure that's somehow imposed on everyone. We just don't have a sufficient foundation to build that kind of of meta-narrative. This is where you get the idea of relativism. The idea that all truth claims, all moral values, all social norms are ultimately relativized because none of them has any foundation to assert themselves over the other. I can say Jesus Christ is the Son of God, you can say Ronald McDonald is the Son of God, and we're, we're both, we're not just both to be acknowledged, we are both equally right. We are both equally to be affirmed. Both views are equally true in whatever sense you define that. And neither of us has any way of claiming precedence for our view over the other view. That would be to introduce a meta-narrative. And if there's one thing postmodernists ban outright, it is the meta-narrative. It is the big story. So this is where relativism and pluralism, these ideas come in. Many voices, many truth claims, many ideologies, all of them equal all of them valid, all of them necessarily affirmed. Okay, 
In a couple of minutes that we've got left, let me just offer you briefly an evaluation of, of postmodernism, and I, I offer this as, as a Christian from within the Christian community, from within the Christian tradition. Um, some people get very wary even of any idea of evaluation. How can you possibly evaluate a movement like that because there's no basis on which to do so? So, I do this from a Christian worldview. Uh, let me say firstly, I think postmodernism has many strengths. Uh, some Christians want to treat it as a swear word and write it off. Anything to do with postmodernism is bad. I don't take that view. I think that in a lot of ways it's very refreshing. And I would argue that postmodernism's critique of the three premises of modernity are ones that we should affirm. That might surprise you. But I think we can affirm the fact that knowledge is not necessarily good. There's a big difference between knowledge and wisdom. And in fact, I think one of the things that postmodernism has done is emphasize the Christian doctrine of the fall and sin. The fact that humans are fallible. The fact that knowledge in our hands is not inevitably good, doesn't necessarily lead to the betterment of society, and in fact often is used for selfish means, for an egocentric way, and we do rapidly deteriorate. Knowledge does not necessarily lead to wisdom. Wisdom is the right use of knowledge, but knowledge by itself in our hands is not always a good thing and can often be used for harm. Secondly, I think we should agree with the fact that knowledge is not entirely objective. Some Christians get a bit nervy at this point. Like, Hang on a minute. Well, now we're shaking all the foundations. But again, postmodernists are right that we live within the world and we see the world through the lens of our own communities. We can freely acknowledge that we bring all of our subjective influences, all of the groups of which we're a part, to the table whenever we discuss issues, whenever we interpret issues, and even when we study the biblical text. And so when you and I read the Lord's Prayer that says, give us this day our daily bread, it, it has a very different ring to it for us than it does for a brother or sister in an impoverished country literally struggling to put bread on the table every single day. They're going to hear that differently. It has a different ring to it. We are not perfectly neutral observers of knowledge. We're not perfectly uh, unbiased and unblemished and unconditioned. We are subjective beings. We're placed within the world and we observe the world from within it. And that means, lastly, that it's quite true that our knowledge is not entirely certain. Again, that might make you really nervous, and you think, well, we're throwing everything out now. How can we possibly know anything? I think, friends, this actually squares perfectly with what the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, where he says, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. It's interesting, isn't it? I think partly what Paul's demonstrating here, among other things, is intellectual humility. The humility to acknowledge that we don't have perfect understanding and knowledge in the present. We don't have perfect certainty around everything. That what we do know, we know imperfectly, and we await the day when knowledge will be given to us in its fullness. But this is the point at which postmodernists, I think, also make their biggest mistake. Because what seems to happen much of the time is that postmodernists set up this false antithesis. They argue that because we can't have perfect objectivity and perfect certainty, that we can have no objectivity and no certainty. It's almost like this either-or dichotomy, which is ironic because postmodernists hate either-or. They love both and. And yet at the heart of postmodern thinking, postmodern theory of knowledge, is this idea that unless we can know it perfectly, unless essentially we have omniscience, then 
We're left in this formless void of ideas and we can know nothing with any certainty or any objectivity whatsoever and everything is up for grabs and there's no possible foundation for knowledge. And yet I would argue that it's entirely possible to know things with a degree of objectivity without perfect objectivity. That it's possible to know things with a high degree of certainty without having complete certainty about everything. You may not be perfectly objective and perfectly certain about what you're going to have for lunch today. But you may still have a high degree of objectivity and a high degree of certainty about what it's going to be. You can't be empirically certain that it's going to be the case, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to have a Wendy's chicken fillet breast combo burger for lunch today. I can have a high degree of certainty about that, allowing for the fact that a million things may happen between now and then. I can't claim to know, friends, with perfect objectivity and even perfect certainty in a sense, the statement, God is love. How do you fathom that? How do you claim to have absolute knowledge about a statement like that? And yet, does that mean we can have no knowledge of it? We see God's love revealed through creation. We see God's love revealed in the face of Jesus of Nazareth. I see God's love revealed in my own life and His transforming grace. And that gives me a high degree of objectivity and a high degree of certainty about God's love. And yet I can still freely acknowledge with postmodern theorists that my knowledge is not always good, it's not perfectly objective, and it's not perfectly certain. And yet we can speak of partial knowledge as Christians. With the Apostle Paul, we can speak of knowing in part and knowing enough upon which to build convictions and truth claims and certainty. And that's especially true if there is a God and he has revealed himself to us. If God stayed silent or if he doesn't exist, then you'd have to concede it's really difficult to know anything. All we're left with is our own human minds grappling at truth. But if God has spoken, if he has revealed knowledge to us, then it's entirely possible, even essential, to speak of knowing in accordance with what God's revealed to us. And this is exactly what we find in the Bible. In the opening verses of Hebrews, the author says, In these last days God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. God has spoken, and his word is not simply an audible voice or even primarily a written text, but it is foundationally a person, Jesus of Nazareth. And because God has spoken in Jesus, and that word is certain and sure, Jesus himself becomes a secure foundation upon which we can build knowledge, upon which we can know ourselves, know God, and know the world. And so I would suggest to you finally that because there is a foundation for true knowledge, because there is a foundation of knowing the person of Jesus himself, that we don't need to throw out the idea of a meta-narrative. A meta-narrative only needs to be abandoned when there's no possible sufficient foundation for one to exist. And yet if we argue that Jesus of Nazareth provides that foundation, that he is the Logos, he is the word spoken by God, then we can reintroduce a meta-narrative. And I would say that a Christian response to postmodernism is not to return to pre-modernism, which some people want to do, or to go back to modernism, which some people seem to want to do, but to embrace the best of postmodernity, but to embrace it with an overarching meta-narrative, a postmodern meta-narrative, if you like. And that, and that meta-narrative is simply the biblical story, which makes sense of our world, gives us a sense of where we've come from and where we're going, the overarching storyline of God reconciling all things to himself through Christ. It's not a meta-narrative that oppresses. It's not a meta-narrative that excludes. It is an embracing, all-inclusive story that makes sense 
of our lives and can structure and order our existence. So that, I think, is a way forward for Christians in dealing with postmodernism. Don't completely embrace everything, but don't completely discard everything. Postmodernity is simply the cultural water that we're swimming in. We need to learn to survive in it, and we need to learn to embrace elements of it and enable the gospel to make sense within it, because these are the hearers that are listening to the message we have to speak, and we need to make sure that it makes sense in the marketplace without compromising the essential message and the good news of Jesus Christ.